reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 16, starting with verse 2. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, If only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve, this entire assembly to death. Then the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread from heaven for you. The people are to go out each day and gather enough for that day. In this way, I will test them and see whether they will follow my instructions. On the sixth day, they are to prepare what they bring in, and that is to be twice as much as they gather on the other days. So Moses and Aaron said to the Israelites, In the evening you will know that it was the Lord who brought you out of Egypt, and in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we that you should grumble against us? Moses also said, you will know that it was the Lord when he gives you meat to eat in the evening and all the bread you want in the morning because he has heard your grumbling against him. Who are we? You, you are not grumbling against us, but against the Lord. Then Moses said to Aaron, say to the entire Israelite community, come before the Lord, for he has heard your grumbling. While Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in the cloud. The Lord said to Moses, I have heard the grumbling of the Israelites. Tell them at twilight you will eat meat, and in the morning you will be filled with bread. Then you will know that I am the Lord, your God. That evening quail came and covered the camp, and in the morning there was a layer of dew around the camp. When the dew was gone, thin flakes like frost on the ground appeared on the desert floor. When the Israelites saw it, they said, what is it? Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given you to eat. The word of the Lord. A reading from Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 1, starting with verse 21. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to go on living in the body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is better by far, but is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain, and I will continue with all of you for your progress and joy in the faith, so that through my being with you, again, your boasting in Christ Jesus will abound on account of me. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. The word of the Lord. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Matthew. Jesus told his disciples this parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out at dawn to hire laborers for his vineyard. 
After agreeing with them for the usual daily wage, he sent them into his vineyard. Going out about nine o'clock, the landowner saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And he said to them, you too go into my vineyard and I will give you what is just. So they went off. And he went out again around noon and around three o'clock and did likewise. Going out about five o'clock, the landowner found others standing around and said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They answered, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You too, go into my vineyard. When it was evening, the landowner, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, summon the laborers and give them their pay, beginning with the last and ending with the first. When those who had started about five o'clock came, uh, each received the usual daily wage. So when the first came, they thought that they would receive more, but each of them also got the usual wage. And on receiving it, they grumbled against the landowner, saying, These last ones worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us, who bore the day's burden and the heat. He said to one of them in reply, My friend, I am not cheating you. Did you not agree with me for the usual daily wage? Take what is yours and go. What if I wish to give this last one the same as you? Or am I not free to do as I wish with my own money? Are you envious because I am generous? Thus the last will be first and the first will be last. The gospel of the Lord. Glad to be with you all. Glad for this opportunity to worship together as we do each week. Um, so there's a phrase that gets thrown around a lot in the Christian faith. If you've been a Christian for a while, or if you've ever even been around the Christian faith, you've heard this before, and that is trust in the Lord or trust in God. It's kind of our thing. <laughs> it's, it's what we say, but sometimes we can say it, and what does it even really mean? Like, What do we mean by trust the Lord? Trust is really the foundational element of the, what we call faith. Faith is not just intellectual assent. It's not that, oh man, I've been convinced of something and I have all the facts and now I've been convinced of this and so I have faith, I intellectually assent. That's what we often think. But really, faith is about trust. It's about acknowledging that there's something, more specifically someone outside of myself, who can be trusted. Christians also trust that this one outside of ourselves is good and good all the way through, that this God is the self-giving one, the one who is fully loving. So there's a lot of people today that would suggest that when we say the word faith, what actually the closest idea to that might be this idea of allegiance, giving allegiance to this one, trusting this one. Christians are the ones who give allegiance to the true God who has been revealed in Christ. Now our allegiance is not coerced, it's not manipulated, but because we know that in him is life and life as, it, as it's meant to be lived. This is central to all of our readings today, that Christians are a people who trust not in ourselves, but trust in God. So in our Exodus reading, the children of Israel have just crossed the Red Sea. It's this miraculous work that has just happened. And the author gives them a new name that we've never heard before. He calls them the Congregation of Israel. And I think the author here is intending us to see that this people has become something new through the Red Sea experience. 
that they have crossed, that they are something different than they were before. They've walked through something and they have a new identity. They're a new people in some way. And then they get hangry. So they start to grumble and complain. And their hangriness causes them to question, were we better off in slavery than we are now? At least in Egypt, there were, and it says it here, there were pots of meat sitting around. (laughs) But here, we don't have the pots of meat. Sure, God's people were oppressed in Egypt. They weren't free, but they could eat whatever they wanted to. God tells Israel in response that he's going to provide for them. He will give them bread from heaven, enough food for each day. And it says he will test them to see if they will follow his instructions. Now, I don't know what comes to mind for you when you hear about testing or God testing his people. Sometimes we tend to think of religious tests in the same way that we think of tests in school, that it's something we can pass or fail. And so when we do that and we hear of a religious test or we even think God is testing me, we develop a picture of a God who's manipulating, who's pulling puppet strings to try to get us to do something for him. But testing in the Old Testament is way more about shaping than it is about proving. A test is a trial that someone goes through that forms who they are. In fact, whether they pass or fail is less important. If you read the story, they fail a lot, and we fail a lot. What matters is they're shaped through the test. So we might imagine God saying, I'm going to reveal something to them, to my people, about the kind of community I am creating in the moment. I am shaping them into a people I desire them to be. God is forming a community that's centered on everyday trust. Now we rumor this story every time we pray, as Jesus taught us to pray, give us this day our daily bread. Because we say that we need God daily. We don't just need a dose of God to get us through from time and time again. We need God daily. We need trust in him. Now, some of us were raised in faith. Some of us go, I don't remember a time that I wasn't a Christian. (laughs) I've been raised in faith. Some of us came to faith later in life. I know those feel like very different experiences. Some of us were raised in faith. We left for a little while, (laughs) and then we've been drawn back for some reason. What often happens when someone comes to faith or when they return to faith is we're often tempted to think, this great, amazing thing happened, and now life is going to be blissful forever. (laughs) Like, God saved me. God rescued me. I've gone through this thing. We have Jesus. What could possibly go wrong? And this story shows us that there is always difficulty on the other side of rescue. The children of Israel have just walked through this incredible experience. God saved them from Egypt and delivered them through the Red Sea. God parted a sea for them. But the challenge for Israel is not forgetting that that thing happened. They remember that that thing happened. But the belief that after it happened, shouldn't everything just be perfect? Shouldn't it be right? And if I'm experiencing difficulty, does that mean that thing wasn't all that great or all that powerful in the first place? God's people tend to become disillusioned and grumble and complain after God does something amazing, and then the real stuff of everyday life hits. 
Now, I understand. I, I am a trusting, faithful, allegiant Christian. As long as my kids are sleeping through the night, as long as I have money in the bank account, as long as I'm healthy and everyone likes me, and I've just eaten a good meal. <laughs> I'm a really good Christian in those situations. But what about when we don't see God's provision? For the Christian, Passover, this experience of being set free from Egypt, is often seen as a reflection of Jesus' death, of Christ's death. The perfect sacrifice, the blood that marks who we are as God's people, the crossing then of the Red Sea is a reflection of Christ's resurrection, right? We've been set free. Jesus has conquered and crossed the great sea of death itself. And now the children of Israel are headed to the promised land, which is a reflection of God's new world. God's world restored that we all long for and hope for. So Christians have always believed that we live in this in-between time. We live in the wilderness between rescue and promise. In the wilderness, we live in this tension between believing what we know to be true and realizing we don't really see it in fullness yet. Theologians often call this the already not yet, which is a super confusing <laughs> formulation, but it's also kind of helpful. We say, okay, we've already been rescued, but we don't yet see it in fullness. We live in this tension together. We've been rescued through Christ's death and resurrection. We've been saved. We've been made new. And yet we look at the world and we go, gosh, there's still so much pain. We look at our lives and we go, gosh, there's still so much hurt. It's in the wilderness that we're most often distracted in our lives, not by these like dramatic attacks of the devil, right? But by just everyday stuff. Usually it's when we have real, legitimate, everyday needs in our lives that we turn to other things to meet those needs and we wander from God's best for us. C.S. Lewis wrote this marvelous little book years ago called The Screwtape Letters. Some of you may have read it. And it depicts a fictional, of course, <laughs> we think fictional, correspondence between a demon named Screwtape who's working on the front lines, tempting people, and his superior officer, Wormwood. In one chapter, Screwtape tells the story of a patient, sound atheist who would read in the British Museum. Screwtape says that he notices that the man's thoughts begin to drift the wrong way which we presume means he starts thinking about God or the things of God. So he says this, the demon says, I struck instantly at the part of the man which I had best under my control and suggested it was just about time he had some lunch. It's the everyday things of life. It's our feelings of hunger, our sense of loneliness or neglect, or the scary things in the news that can often knock us off kilter. They reveal what we often trust. When our urges are not met, what happens is our brains kick into a kind of fight-or-flight response. Okay, I don't have this need met immediately, and so we react in panic to how am I going to get out of this situation? Those who specialize in addiction recovery have created this acronym HALT, H-A-L-T, recognizing that recovering addicts are in the most vulnerable positions for relapse when they are hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. But this isn't just true in that world. Often, it's our everyday needs that cause us to lack trust. 
We turn our attention to our anxiety about those needs and how we can get them met quickly. When we're distracted by our own needs, wants, and desires without trusting God, it causes us for us to look for ways that we can meet these needs on our own. Not only can this distract us from our own worship of God, it limits us from seeing God's heart for others. Now, there are many needs in our lives and in the world to be legitimately, righteously angry about. But that anger can so often be misplaced. It can come out in the wrong ways and come out sideways. I once saw this really interesting tweet from a local news director in Colorado who had received this message that was this long, profanity-laced voicemail. And it was attacking this local station for not airing 60 Minutes on Sunday. So this person was very upset and left this very long voicemail. And then it was so long, the voicemail cut off. And then the guy called back to continue his rant about 60 minutes and how frustrated he was. And he yelled some more. And then at the end of the second message, his wife can be heard in the background saying, honey, it's Saturday. 60 minutes is on tomorrow. (laughs) And then he hangs up. I think this illustrates how so many people in our world feel such significant tension in our lives, and it often comes out in the wrong places. The old statement is true. We are all indeed fighting a battle. The Israelites, when they complain, they don't complain directly about God, okay? They complain about their leaders, Moses and Aaron. Why? Because that's a lot easier to do. Moses and Aaron must have missed it along the way. They must have blown it. They must not really be hearing from God. That's misplaced anger. In complaining about them, what the people do is they begin to muddy the waters of what actually happened, okay? They kind of forget. They know what happened, but they start to kind of muddy everything together. So instead of a story about how God delivered them from the hands of the Egyptians, their memory is now about a story of how Moses brought them out in the desert to starve. It matters how we tell the stories of our struggle. One of the greatest challenges in life, I think, is to remember our story rightly. We need to learn to own what has happened to us, to own what we have done, and also to remember that we've been brought through and to remember God's blessing on our lives. So this means a couple things. This means we can realize the bad stuff fully. It is appropriate to say I'm going through really difficult things right now. We don't need to gloss that away. Not all of the Christian life is the experience of victory. It includes pain and loss. And also, we can own the good stuff in our lives. God has brought us through so much. Even if you're here and you're struggling to remember all of the good things in your life, or maybe you feel like there's not a lot of good things, There are some things for which we can always be thankful. The redemption of the world, for grace, for the hope of a world made right. When we learn to tell our story rightly, which involves grieving and giving thanks, we're more clear-eyed to see where God is at work in our midst. God gives his people manna, which is this strange bread-like thing that comes from the sky and it falls like snow. In fact, the word manna comes from the Hebrew words for what is it, (laughs) which I think is so beautiful because God gives them exactly what they need and they don't even know what it is. 
other than it sustains them. They don't know how God is sustaining them, but he's sustaining them. And then it says, not only does he give them manna, he gives them quail. So there's bread in the morning and meat in the evening. But notice, he doesn't give it to them all at once. It isn't this infusion of food all of a sudden. It's implied that manna is something that only happens day to day. It only works if you trust God every single day for it. Something about the nature of God's provision is it's given day to day. And of course, the humans in the story do what, of course, we're going to do. They attempt to hoard it a little bit at a time for a time when the supply might run out. There's this sense of control of if I can have enough to to, to hold back, then if God doesn't provide, then I can still be safe. They're concerned about their own security in a horrible environment. And I don't think we could blame them for that. But the food they store does go rotten. Why? Well, God is very specifically forming them in such a way that they cannot rely on their own ability to save, to plan, or to protect themselves. They have to be fully reliant on him. And this is the everyday posture of the Christian. We are fully reliant on God for what we need today. In our gospel reading, Jesus tells this parable about workers in a vineyard. And the landowner seeks them out from the marketplace, and he does so in waves. So he gets one group early in the morning, goes to the marketplace, gets this group early in the morning. There's one group at 9 o'clock that he gathers. There's another at noon, another at 3 o'clock. And then there's this final group at five o'clock who are described as just wandering around the marketplace. The landowner agrees to pay the early morning group a denarius, which is a day's wage. So it's for a day of work, here's a day's wage. And the others, he doesn't tell them what he's gonna pay them. He just says, I'll pay you whatever is right. Well, at the end of the day, they all receive the same amount. They receive the denarius that he agreed on with the first group. Well, in response, those who had worked all day grumble (laughs) um, because the late arrivers got paid the same amount that they did and they didn't do nearly as much work. And I think they have a point, right? (laughs) Like we look at this and we see some of the unfairness here. Like they're thinking, why do we work all day long and we get the same amount as these people who work just a little bit? Remember, this is a world, this ancient world, without labor unions, There's a lot going on in our cultural conversation right now about labor and wages, fairness. Actors and writers are saying, if Netflix won't tell us how many people are watching movies, how do we know we're getting a fair share of the revenue? Auto workers are saying, if our bosses are making more money and increasingly, why is that not being passed down to us? Now, I'm oversimplifying and I'm not an expert in those things at all. But just to say the challenges, we feel the challenges of labor in our world today, the fairness, that kind of sensibility for us. Well, this is an ancient world where they didn't have stuff like that. Their power resided in the landowner, and that was it. And this particular parable is not intended as a social commentary. Jesus is not saying the right way to pay your workers. But it is intended to tell us something about God. As with many of the parables, the landowner represents God and the workers represent Israel. Notice one of the key phrases in this. So when the landowner goes at five o'clock to the marketplace and he sees the people wandering around, he says, why are you standing here idle all day? 
They say to him, because no one has hired us. Another way to say this is nobody wanted us. These last hired laborers are the neglected, the left out, and the disenfranchised. When the early morning group grumbles that they've received the same amount as those who were hired later, the landowner asks them, are you envious of these other people? He calls them friends, and he says, I fulfilled the original agreement with you, paid you a denarius. Can't I do what I want with that which belongs to me? The phrase, are you envious, can be rendered literally, is your eye evil? Jesus says, is your eye evil because I'm generous? The early morning group is unable to be thankful because they're so jealous of those who have been hired later. The reason that the late hires are paid the same amount is because of the landowner's generosity, that he's good, not that he went against the agreement. The reason for trusting God is not just because it will go better for us. That's kind of what we talked about before. If we trust God, we know he has the best desire for our lives. But gratefulness, trusting in God's goodness, helps us to see his great love for others especially those on the margins. In light of our own selfishness, what happens is when God's goodness is revealed, then because of our selfishness, our eye actually starts to twist things, to warp things. Our eye becomes evil in light of God's goodness. He says at the end of the parable, so the last will be first and the first will be last. The cool thing about the kingdom of God, one of the things, is that God's grace always works differently than the money or status or power of our world. You can't accrue grace. It's not something you gather up. You can't store up grace. There are not levels of grace. In fact, the denarius here is just a metaphor because there's nothing like money in the kingdom of God. You can't earn anything like money in the kingdom of God. Your work doesn't give you a fancier crown or a mansion in heaven. It's different from all that. God is deeply and truly good and desires to give us everything. A life of fullness, a world restored, every good gift. And what do we do in return? We give our whole selves. It's not because our whole selves is a tradable currency or that God needs it somehow. It's because God and only God can be trusted with our lives. Another wrinkle in this story is sometimes many of us hear this story and we quickly identify with those who were hired first. There's kind of an entitlement here. I've been walking with Jesus for a long time. We think about, yes, I need to show God's grace to others. That's just what we talk about and that's good. I I was hired first and there are others who will be hired later. But we can't forget that in a very real sense, We are those who have been hired much, much later. We are the ones who are brought in by grace. It is the disciples who were hired first. And we are the ones who have been brought in at the tail end of the day or much later. We are only here today because of grace. We didn't do anything. This is uniquely true for those of us, I think all of us today, who are Gentiles The Apostle Paul reminds us God will always be faithful to Israel. The Jews are the inheritors of this story. Those of us who are Gentiles have been grafted in, Romans 11, 24 says. 
It's significant that the owner of the vineyard tells, this is such a dramatic part of the story, he tells his manager to pay the last hired first. So pay those people first. If he had started with the people who were hired first, they, would have no, they wouldn't have known they were all being paid the same amount. They'd take their paycheck and, and they'd go. God doesn't hide the radical nature of his grace. In fact, he kind of shows it off. God is incredibly generous, and in light of God's incredible generosity, our envy of those we think are undeserving is laid bare before us. God is generous and has more than we could ever need or ask for. Yet so often we operate out of scarcity, fear, or self-focus worried that we're always getting the short end of the stick. Both, if you notice, there's a word that, or there's a concept that bridges these two, and that's this idea of grumbling. The grumbling of the children of Israel in the desert and the grumbling of those hired early are the result of a misapprehension of God or the landowner's character. They have a faulty understanding of who the landowner is or who God is, and so they grumble. Neither of them start with presuming that God is generous, that he's good and gracious, even though God's generosity had been shown on both occasions. Gregory the Great says it succinctly. He says this, it is always foolish to question the goodness of God. It's always foolish to question the goodness of God. Our lives in Christ are brought about only by God's grace. If we think we can fix our own lives and the world outside of grace, we will come up empty. In fact, in our epistle reading, in the midst of his suffering in prison, Paul says to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, to continue to live is just a life poured out to God, given to God because it's a gift of grace, no matter what suffering is faced. And to die in the occasion that all of us will die It's to be present with him. And in and through it all, God can be trusted. It's really easy for us to get confused about this, to think that the kingdom of God and the way of the kingdom works like the ways of our world. It's easy to think that those who have done a lot for God are somehow in a special category of Christian, but that's not grace. God is always shouting in the marketplace calling for those who have been left out and neglected. It is only in radical trust that we find life as it is truly meant to be lived. We receive grace, just like manna from heaven. Nothing we can produce, only something given freely. And the challenge was the same for Israel as it is for us. Will we still continue to try to control things on our own? Or will we trust in God? Will we grumble based on what we think God should do? Or will we rest in the everyday trust in the God who has rescued us, looking to him regularly for our daily bread? Amen.